people's bad attitudes. Yeah, that's good. Good microphone, bad people. That's always the way it is. Good to see everybody. Uh, Brother Chuck is not here today. He is, I think, this weekend with Combat Marine Outdoors. You know, that's the ministry he has such a heart for. And it's a great organization. They take not just Marines, but soldiers, sailors, others who've been wounded in combat out to hunt to give them an opportunity to be in the outdoors, enjoy each other's company, begin to feel whole again. And so that's what he's doing uh, uh, this weekend, I'm pretty sure. So on his behalf, let me just thank you for a wonderful Christmas get-together. Thanks to the class leaders, directors in this class and the other two for putting together a wonderful uh, party. And also thank you for a most generous gift given to me and to Chuck. It was above and beyond. It's surely undeserved. I guess that's what a gift is by definition. It's something you don't deserve. It's just given by grace. So thank you very, very much uh, for that. I know he is greatly appreciative and overwhelmed, as am I. And Chuck wanted me to tell you that because it was so generous a gift, he said he's going to try a lot harder in this year (laughs) to be more helpful to you. And so I told him, hey, Chuck, I'm here for you. I'll help you, buddy. And so there you have it. Hope you take advantage of the apologetics conference, as Richard said, this morning and then tonight, 5.30, tomorrow night, 6.30, some of the country's foremost uh, exponents of teaching on defending our faith. It'll confirm yours and give you good responses to people who object to the faith. The Bible is filled with errors. How do you Christians have the gall to say Jesus is the only way? If your God is so good, why do babies die? Things like that. Those are the tough subjects that are going to be addressed uh, this morning, tonight at 5.30 and tomorrow at 6.30. Some of you are perhaps familiar with the book, The Case for Christ, a little paper book, each chapter written by a different author, confronting some of the issues that uh, I mentioned, that Richard mentioned earlier. Uh, the author and editor of it is Lee Strobel. He'll be one of the speakers, I think, tomorrow night he's on. I can't remember what the schedule is, but really wonderful story. He was an investigative journalist, I think, for the Chicago Tribune. And his wife came home and with excitement shared with him how she had come to know the Lord. He did not share her enthusiasm. uh, And he used his investigative journalistic skills to look into the claims of Christ to persuade her out of it. And in the course of things, he got persuaded by faith into it. He saw that there's a factual basis for the resurrection and reliability of Scripture and all the rest. That's how he got his spiritual beginnings and has used his skills, uh, writing and research since then over the years to really, really bring glory to God. He's an adjunct faculty member at HBU in their increasingly growing apologetics department. So he's one of the speakers uh, in uh, both of our services today. And also in the Spanish service, one of the speakers is fluent in Spanish, and he'll be uh, delivering the message uh, to our Spanish speakers this morning. And then this evening and tomorrow evening, he will be translating all the message into Spanish. So if, uh, if Spanish is a language you're more comfortable with, you can go to the lobby. You, you'll pick up these little head things, and you can sit in there. And uh, a wonderful um, translator will be able to translate the message for you. 
It's also being, I'm told, streamed, live streamed, if it works, uh, which means you go to the Sagemont Church website, push a button, and you can sit back at home in your pajamas and watch the messages if you'd like. If that's not your cup of tea, they'll all be recorded and eventually put on our website. This will take a little while to assemble all the messages, but we'll put it on our website. We have a licensure agreement with all the speakers so that we're not violating any any laws here. They're permitting us to keep them on the website at this point for three months. And I'm sure if we wanted to extend it, they would probably uh, be willing to let us do that. But anyway, that's just to let you know if you can't make it or know someone who's interested and can't make it, there'll be another opportunity. There's no charge, no tickets. You just come as you see fit, sit where you'd like, and then uh, take in what these uh, fellows have to say. Okay, so there you have it. We, even in 2018, are still in 1 Samuel, and we will be in chapter 19 today. As you turn there, let me fill you in on what's going on. Saul, the king, first king of Israel, is being replaced. He's having increasing periods of emotional instability and even demonic oppression. Um, He's sufficiently disobeyed God and rebelled against him that it's time for his replacement. So God selected an unlikely character, David. We read a description of him, a youth with ruddy complexion, meaning he was clean shaven, probably didn't even start to shave yet, just a kid. And the scripture said God took him from the sheep folds, he was a shepherd boy, to shepherd his people Israel. And so David is Saul's replacement will be, and Saul is not happy with David most of the time, even though David is quite an ally. He was brought to the royal palace to play the harp so as to soothe Saul, who was agitated emotionally and spiritually and all the rest. And yet Saul, every time David has a success, as with Goliath, uh, Saul's, uh, uh, he gets threatened. He's quite narcissistic. He's an egotistical guy. And he wants to kill David. He's been somewhat subtle about it. Covertly, he has thought about murdering David, but that hasn't worked. And therefore, he goes public now and essentially um, unashamedly issues a mandate that David is to be killed. So that's where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan his son. Jonathan is David's son and also a close friend of David. And all his servants to put David to death. So this is a horrific thing for a father to authorize a son to become. I authorize you, my son Jonathan, to become a murderer. I don't think that's the typical kind of influence a dad wants to have on a son's life, but that's what was going on here. However, Jonathan greatly delighted in David. Now, this put Jonathan in a tough spot. He has his dad wanting one thing, but Jonathan was close friends, very close friends with David. Let me just take a little bit of a a departure and and tell you those who seek to justify um, the same gender uh, lifestyle, uh, same gender marriage, lifestyle, and so on, uh, from the scriptures, not all do, but those who want to justify that Uh, lifestyle from the scriptures often point to the relationship between Jonathan and David, it being so close, and concluding that it was a homosexual relationship. I just want you to know this. That's part of the argument. 
uh, in making a biblical case for homosexuality, Jonathan, as it says, greatly delighted in David. Let me just tell you that that is not true. Uh, that is really reading into the text more than the text allows us to have. Isn't it very possible for two men, two women to be extremely close friends and yet not have uh, sexual desires for one another? I mean, don't be ridiculous for crying out loud. I mean, Chuck and I are friends and he and I, we're not at all attracted to one another. <laughs> Let me just, just put it to you. That way. So anyway, sheer and utter nonsense. Jonathan had a close friend, David. That's it. Now, Jonathan is in quite a position. He is the crown prince. He is in line to be the next king, really. After Saul, the son should assume the throne. What an opportunity for Jonathan to hasten the process. That is to go along with his father's mandate. It was a governmental, legalized thing. The king said, kill him. Jonathan could have, and he would have advanced his own position, but he did not. Why? Because he knew that God anointed David to be king, not he himself. And Jonathan was a godly guy, which gives hope to you and I as dads and moms. We don't have to be perfect. Uh, and there can even have been some spiritual drifts and even periods of ungodliness in our lives as parents, and yet there's still a possibility our kids can turn out to be godly kids. <laughs> Pray for them. <laughs> uh, do the best you can. I mean, Jonathan seems to have overcome the deficits of his parenting. His dad was quite a crazy and ungodly kind of a guy, and yet Jonathan turns out to be quite a virtuous and, and godly man. And so he does not take, participate in this plan to kill David by no means. Now, he's in a rough position because doesn't the Bible say, uh, in the form of a commandment, honor your father and mother? Oh, this guy's father said, kill David. He is choosing, as you'll see, not only not to kill David, but to protect David. Is he disobeying the commandment that says, thou shalt honor father and mother? Well, the answer is no, he's not disobeying it. To honor parents does not mean to render unconditional submission and obedience to parents. Did you know that? If your parents, even you as an adult child of parents now, if your parents require something of you that is displeasing to God, who are you going to obey, God or parents? Yeah. I have to tell you, that's a biblical principle. There were apostles in the book of Acts who were sharing the gospel. People told them, stop doing this. Again, government said, cease talking about Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, it simply says, we must obey God rather than men. So there are many authority submission roles we find ourselves in. We as Christian citizens are in a, a submissive relationship. We ought to be to government. Uh, there's authority submission roles in the household, in church, and all the rest don't get nervous about these things. Ultimately, we must obey God rather than man. So if a lesser authority is requiring something of you or I that God would not have us do, we must respectfully say, whether it be to government or anyone else, I'm sorry, we must obey God rather than man. I've told you this rather grotesque story, but I'll do it again. It's actually true. A million years ago, I was a counselor, and a lady came to see me. She was actively suicidal at the time. Uh, she was married, and her husband told her it would be helpful to him if he could bring home men from his workplace to have relations with his wife while he watched. I'm not making this up. 
she cooperated and as a result sank into such great shame, guilt, and depression, she thought suicide was the only way out. Um, why did she do it? Well, the husband said, according to Ephesians chapter 5, the commandment is, wives, submit to your husbands. That's what he would tell her. It says right here, he showed her in print, wives, submit to your husbands. He left out the part, and husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. That was an inconvenient part of the text. Anyway, that's what he shared, and she participated. Folks, if you want to twist Scripture, you will succeed in twisting Scripture. That's not what Scripture says at all. Rule of thumb, no wife, no Christian citizen, no child is permitted to submit to any authority requiring something of you God does not approve of. It's as simple as that. So here, Jonathan was honoring his father, but honoring your father doesn't mean unconditional submission to your father. And so here, he's submitting instead to heavenly father. And so he seeks to protect David as we read in verse 2. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul... My father is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I'll go out. I'll stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, I'll tell you. Well, then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant, David, since he has not sinned against you. And since his deeds have been very beneficial to you, for he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine. What's the Philistine's name? Yeah, Goliath. Remember that? And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul vowed, as the Lord lives... He shall not be put to death. Jonathan interceded on David's behalf, even at personal risk. And, wow, what a window, window of rationality. He got to his father. His father said, you're right. Why am I doing this? I vow by God not to hurt David. How long does that vow last? Well, you'll see, not very long at all. Now, it's very serious when you make promises and invoke God's name. You have to be really careful because though we don't take it very seriously, God does. Saul invoked God's name. God listens up when that happens. And then he turned around and broke the vow. Folks, I would be really careful. I would not enter. I would not exchange marital vows of commitment unless you're ready <laughs> to honor your vows. I would rather be lonely. Being alone and uh, lonely, hurts, you can deal with it. I would, I, I would be very careful of trying to resolve the loneliness, loneliness by stepping up to the altar before God and witnesses, exchanging vows in God's name without the wherewithal, intent, commitment, devotion, dedication to keep your word. I wouldn't do it. Don't do it. It's very serious. I wouldn't sign contracts. I wouldn't make promises. Look, folks, someone comes to you with a need and you say, I will pray for you. Don't say that unless you plan on it. 
because I think God takes note of our words. Why? He surely wants us to respect the veracity, truthfulness, and reliability of his word. What God says he does, he wants us to reflect him. So don't say stuff you don't mean. Don't come upon someone and say, hey, good to see you. I'll give you a call tomorrow. We'll do lunch. Don't say that unless you plan on giving that person a call tomorrow. That makes you someone whose words have decreasing credibility. And, man, that is just really prolific today. People don't do what they say. Therefore, don't say stuff you don't intend to do. I was a military chaplain a million years ago in World War I or something like that. And on one occasion, I was stationed uh, in, uh, at Fort Bliss. And what a misnomer for a name. But anyway, Fort Bliss. And... Uh, for blisters. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, they had something called Air Defense Command there, and uh, it was kind of a basic trainee department of the military. New potential soldiers would come and go through basic training, and I was assigned there to a chapel to kind of minister to these new recruits who are having all kinds of issues when you join the military and some guys yelling at you and all this stuff. But I'd come into the chapel every morning, and it'd be like 100 guys in there waiting. For Bible study? No. Prayer? No. Waiting to see the chaplain. Why? Because they want to get out of the service. And they want a letter from the chaplain to go to the commanding officer to authorize a discharge for them. I mean, that's what I would do. I'd spend like the whole day meeting with these guys. And some guys, I would write the letter. I didn't have the authority to get them out, but I could recommend to the commanding officer, it's probably best that this guy not stick around. And so, because some of them were real liabilities. You don't want to be in combat with certain people who are you know, liability. So part of the chaplain's job is to kind of root that out before it's, it's time, before there's a conflict. So in some cases, I'd write the letter, and in others, I remember looking across from one guy, Jim, I just got to, this is just not for me. Why is it not for you? I just don't understand it. You know, the, yes, sir, no, sir, certainly, you know, the uniform and stuff like that. I like to wear a variety of things. And <laughs> that's what he said. Oh, for crying out loud. That was unbelievable. And so... Uh, and he said, and then he said, and like, and like the 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 drill instructor, the DI. What did I ever do to him? Why does he why does he hate me? You know, and stuff. You know, all this kind of stuff. Typical. So I got to get out of here. It's just you know, psychologically, it's just it's just not for me. And I told him, and I understand this is stressful. You know, it's it's a it's a it's meant to be stressful. It's an artificial time. It really isn't the real world. It's not even the real army. Once you get through basic training and all that kind of stuff, you know, you, you can be a person again and, and you, can, you can wear different colored shirts, you know, and whatever the deal is, off-duty. And, you know, so we're having this, we're having this kind of uh, deal, and I said, I understand that, and I'll try to help you, but I'm not going to write a letter uh, recommending your discharge. He said, why not, Chap? That's what I want. And I said, I know that's what you want, but that's not what you need. And I said, I'll tell you what, you what I mean. I said, did anyone twist your arm when you went to the recruiting station? Did any, did the, we, did the uh, recruiter misrepresent stuff or anything like that? I mean, was a gun held to your head when you signed on the dotted line, all this? No, nothing like that. I just thought, yeah, I mean, maybe you didn't do the proper research. And I, you know, I can help you maybe do better research. But, but the point is, of your own free will and volition, you signed a, a military contract. And, and if we try to get you out of that, then when you get out, you're going to sign a contract to buy a vehicle, and you're not going to be able to, you're going to default on the loan. And what's, what's worse, you're going to find a girl. It's possible even someone like you can find someone who'd want to be your partner for life. 
And um, you, you're going to make a vow to her. And three weeks later, because y- y- you don't think she's a good cook or something, whatever the deal is, and she yells at you just like your drill instructor, you're going to want to get out of that. You're going to want to get out of that deal too. So to help you out, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be true to your word. And I'm going to show you that you can do it. And I'm going to show you then uh, you need to be careful about vowing and oath-taking and all this kind of, kind of stuff. Well, uh, it didn't work. The guy got himself deliberately in trouble so that he, got, he was out on, on a less than honorable discharge. But, but anyway, here's the point. Words are important. Don't say stuff you don't mean because God never does. So this is serious business. Can you see what's going on with Saul? He's really rebelling against God and turning against him, and God is just saying enough is enough. He's going to replace him. So Saul takes a vow, invoking God's very name, doesn't intend to keep it. So here's what happens. Verse 7. Jonathan called David. Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he, he was in his presence as formerly. For a while, things are going good. Uh, David's playing the harp. You know, the music is soothing the king. He can't get to sleep or who knows what. He's agitated. David's harp playing is serving a purpose. So this is what happens. Verse 8, when there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. So this is really good. David is doing good things on behalf of Israel Uh, God enables him to win victory again, but Saul does not like this. Every time David succeeds, Saul freaks out even more. He's threatened by this. So this is just enhancing Saul's paranoia like crazy. By the way, these Philistines, they keep cropping up, don't they? I mean, for crying out loud, as we go through so much of the Old Testament, the Philistines, 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 what's the deal? Um. They were a seafaring people. They crossed the Aegean Sea, probably from the Greek islands. Um, and they came and settled on the western shore of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea in places like Gaza. You, you hear about Gaza in the news all the time. And in fact, one of their heroes, uh, Goliath, was from one of the Philistine cities called Gath, Ekron, Ashkelon. These are present-day cities in Israel today. They were... They were major Philistine cities. Um, As a sidelight, you may be interested in this. Uh, I'm surely interested in telling you this. The word Palestine and Palestinians emanates from this word Philistine. Did did you know that? It's kind of odd to think of it in those terms. It's true. Uh, The uh, uh, Israelites, ancient Israelites, revolted against uh, Roman oppression. The Romans them up pretty bad and didn't like this. And they said, uh, we'll show you Jews. We're going to rename your land after your perennial foes, the Philistines. So they came up the name Palestine from Philistines. I'm not lying to you. This is true. So therefore, there really is no people group called the Palestinians. Now, I know I just said something terribly offensive. Please hear me out. I didn't say there aren't people who identify themselves as Palestinians. That is a viable people group who are worthy of rights, protections, fair treatment by Israel and every other people. The Palestinians are created in God's image. Jesus died for them. He loves them as much as he loves anyone. Most Palestinians are members of the Muslim faith, but many are Christians like you and I. Our brothers and sisters are Palestinians, some. So we want to be really, really careful about denigrating a 
people group. However, I just want to be honest with you. The Palestinians, there is no separate people group. There's no such thing as the, the language of the Palestinians. You can't go to school and study Palestinian. You can study Arabic because the Palestinians are Arab peoples. Where they come from? Well, many from Israel. They were born there in the land of Canaan, Israel. Others from Egypt, from Jordan, from other places, other places like this. In fact, the one-time leader of the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, he's deceased now, Yasser Arafat, was an Egyptian man, a Palestinian. He was an Egyptian man. So I'm not saying uh, the Palestinian presence and people um, should be mistreated, denigrated, anything like that. I'm not saying... Anything like that. I'm, I'm just telling you, it's really a political identification than a, than a historically consistent one. <laughs> Palestine comes from the Philistines. By the way, our president on Thursday kept his word. He said if the Palestinians' leadership, not the people, leadership, continue to be obnoxious and refuse to come back to the peace table, we're going to stop funding certain branches of the United Nations. There's an organization that's it's not a department in the UN. I can't remember the initials. United Nations, and then there's some letters after it. Um, it uh, the U.S., you, contribute one-fourth of its annual budget. The American taxpayer, one-fourth, U.S. Rather disproportionate supply of financial resource from us. One-third of it has now been reduced. One-third of that one-fourth by the president, he's cut it off. He has said if the Palestinians uh, refuse to recognize Jerusalem, refuse to, as Israel's capital, refuse to come back to the peace table, continue to uh, lobby for Israel's demise and all the rest, why, why should we continue to support you know, the, the cause? Now, that particular UN organization is responsible for taking care of uh, Palestinian refugees. I would put refugees in quotes. Again, you, you can hate me for this, but but prove me wrong. i put it in quotes and I'll tell you why. The Palestinian refugee crisis, and it is, is simply a political tool in the hands of Palestinian leadership. Where are the refugees? Well, when Israel become a, became a state in May 1948, approximately 700,000 Arab peoples left. By Israeli gunpoint? Are you kidding me? They didn't even have guns. They left because Arab leadership said, clear out so we can obliterate the Jews and then come back. Well, it didn't, the obliteration of Jews didn't work out so, so well for them. So the Jews are still in the land, but you got these uh, Arab peoples who, at the suggestion of their own leadership, left to go to places, Jordan, Lebanon, other, other such places. Well, uh, they're refugees technically now. I mean, they, they want to come back to, to the land. But it's not such an easy issue. They've had families and all the rest. And, and if Israel just opened, uh, opens up the gates, its rather small population of is Israeli Jews is going to be inundated by those who want to kill them. So it's a bone of contention. It's, it, but it's a political device, uh, to tell you the truth, because the Palestinians are the only ethnic group not taken in by their own people. I mean, most are Jordanian. Why doesn't Jordan take them in? They do to some extent, but why not a greater extent? What about Lebanon? What about oil-rich Saudi Arabia? These are Arabs in Arab culture. These are Arab people. You know, a Jew from anywhere has what's called a right of return under the law of return to Israel. You go to Israel. You go to Israel today, you hear Jews speaking Russian. You, Jews from North Africa, 
Jews from South America, Jews from Europe. It's the Jewish state. Well, the, well there are all kinds of Arab countries. Why don't you take in the, the Palestinians? Nobody is saying that they, they aren't an oppressed and impoverished people, but who's doing the oppression? It's not Israel, for crying out loud. It's, the, it's their own Arab brethren. Israel takes in every Jew. Why don't Arab countries take in the Palestinians? I told you I saw this in Israel one time. Now, you can call me a liar all you want, but... Uh, it's actually something I saw, and if you don't believe me, go to Israel with me. I'm going at the end of October, beginning of November. This is an advertisement. <laughs> That's our next trip. If you're interested, let me know. I'll give you a brochure. Anyway, one time we're there. We're standing on the top of something called Mount Gerizim. You look down, you see Nablus in the West Bank. It's one of the major Palestinian cities, and Palestinian government has large, major control over it. It's ancient Shechem, Shechem. Nablus. So you look at it, and, and, and Nablus is a big city, and then near it is this terribly uh, crowded, um, walled-off area. It's a refugee camp, Palestinian refugee camp, for Palestinians considered refugees to live right there near, near Nablus. Terrible conditions, no argument. Poverty and uh, poor utilities and all the rest. But then you look, I'll bet you it's no more than three-quarters of a mile, just off here to the right. And those of you who've gone with me, tell me if this is not true. Off to the right, there's a housing subdivision. It's beautiful. It's not luxurious, but it's surely better than this refugee camp and this crowded conditions. Who built it? The Israeli government built it. Hamas, Fatah in Nablus, Fatah that branch of the Palestinian government. They didn't build it. The Israelis built it. Why? To relieve the suffering of the so-called Palestinian refugees in this refugee camp. Come move in over here. And not one lives there. It's empty. Why are they not there? Because the Palestinian leadership told their people, we'll kill you if you move in there. Why? Because if they move in there and they're living in a better way, then they lose the propaganda advantage. You can't call Israel the oppressor and an apartheid state if it doesn't look like people are being oppressed by Israel. So therefore, if they move out of the camp into this housing development, uh, it won't look like Israel is oppressing them at all and the Palestinian leadership will lose the propaganda advantage. Now, what does that have to do with the text? Nothing. <laughs> I just want you to know in 2018, I'm getting worse. <laughs> Folks, here's the deal. This is a big issue. And truth has to prevail in adjudicating it. Historical fact, not ideology, has to be inserted into the mix or we'll never end up with a doggone solution. So here you see where the term Palestinian, Palestinian people and all the rest came to pass. It's from the from the word Philistines here. Okay, so David defeats him. Verse 9, there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul. Does anything disturb you about that? So what disturbs you about that? Yeah, evil spirit from the Lord. I mean, we know of the Holy Spirit from the Lord. Evil spirit from the Lord? Would anyone like to um, defend... God, <laughs> in, on this weekend of apologetics. How do you get God off, off the hook here? What do you think, Ryan? 
I see what you're saying. So not actually an actual demonic spirit, but some, like a guilt. Yeah, that's a thought. I don't think it's the right one. <laughs> but it's a thought. Joe? So here's Joe's response, and it's legitimate. Who am I to question God? So that's the best answer ever if you want to avoid the issue. <laughs> Brother Randy? Well, one, sure. No question. So Brother Randy is saying God is simply doing this in response to what he perceives to be what's on Saul's heart. Saul is asking for it. God lets it happen. So that's a good thought. Yes, ma'am? Christine? Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. So Mona has a footnote in in the Bible. And so that's a Bible to keep Mona from having, you know, to think for herself. And so (laughs) those are good. And so, no, I I like to call them training wheel Bibles. That's good. So an injurious spirit, I got it. And in fact, yes, could be translated that way, but it still doesn't address the issue. Why would God then send an injurious spirit upon Saul? Christine? Christine is absolutely right. So in the Veltman family, we see who the spiritual, insightful person is. Listen, that's right. Um, You could say that God, being sovereign, is the first cause of all things, but not the proximate cause. The proximate and immediate cause of an evil spirit coming upon one is Satan. But because God is sovereign, even Satan is restrained, and has to submit to Almighty God and his purposes. And as Randy and Christine said, because of what God perceived to be on Saul's heart, he opened himself up. He made himself vulnerable for, if not the presence of God, then the presence of Satan. And God has the capacity to make use of Satan and his demons, even as a vehicle, which he does in this case. And your reference to Job is perfect. Do you remember when Satan came before God? to ask permission to mess around with Job. Now, you may say, oh, God, why did you say yes? Well, if you read Job 42, you'll find out what God was up to in there. But anyway, so that's the case. So, yes, ma'am. Yeah. 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 So our sister is saying, and it's a good thing, in Job it's clear, you know, that Satan came before God and was authorized by God. To, but here it's not so clear. And she is saying, so let's say someone who's not that familiar with the scripture reads this. It really does look like, the way it's phrased, that God sent this spirit. So our sister is saying it was up to her. She would rewrite the Bible better than God. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing her saying. No, actually, in truth, this is a very interesting thing about Scripture. It's very interesting. Um, It's very clear, and it's very complex. 
at the same time. It's clear enough for our young children, even as we meet here, to have a Bible lesson today and be able to receive and comprehend it. And it's also very complex so that we adults pour over Scripture, asking questions, trying to make sense of it. I think one of the reasons God puts things this way, seriously, I'm not being facetious, is to give people like us a chance to slow down, ask questions of the text, think about it, and try to harmonize passages of Scripture like the two you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. We'll get back to you in just a second, Ray. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Very well said. Very well said. And others have, have essentially said that. Let's not blame this on God. This is Saul's decision. He he essentially he disobeyed. And op- correct. He opened himself up. Yeah. Correct. Well said. Yes, brother. Yeah. Raymond gives a great illustration. Basically, he's saying God made us with free will. We're not robot-like, and we make choices. And, and Ray used the illustration of a buffet. And I don't believe his story because he said it was a $5 buffet. <laughs> Come on. But anyway, he said there's all kinds of things. You make your choices. Some things are more nutritious than others. And he's right. And you live with the consequences. <laughs> right. And Saul... Um, Took the wrong stuff off the buffet. Yeah. But the thing is, I believe everything, and everything again is not blameless. The, the person who has made the right decision, they sinned, obviously, but they, they submitted to God, humbled themselves to God, and confessed their sin to Him. Yeah. That's exactly right. And if God forced us to love and obey him, how would that be love? You'd be a robot, exactly. Good, thank you, Ray. That's one, I think that's great, great stuff. Wonderful. All righty, so here's what happens. Evil spirit from the Lord comes on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear. 
That's odd. I mean, he's in the safest house in Israel. That's the royal palace. He's sitting with his spear. What's up with that? It's like you at home. You're watching TV. You got a cup of coffee in one hand, and you got your Glock in the other. <laughs> you know, I brought this up in the last class. I, I said, "You wouldn't do that, would you?" Like about 18 guys said, "What do you mean? I do." <laughs> I forgot. This is Texas. <laughs> you know, so much for that illustration. <laughs> All right. So he's got the spear in his hand. David's playing the harp. He's doing his harp thing. And uh, verse 10. Saul tries to pin David to the wall. It's not the first time with the spear. You get the impression. I mean, David is like mid-song. All of a sudden, boom, a spear comes flying in. And by God's grace, he's able to avoid getting impaled. The spear sticks in the wall, and it says David slipped away out of Saul's presence. That's the last time we will read about David being in the royal palace until he occupies it as king. How long? Ah, commentators differ. I can't get it figured out. Anywhere from 10 to 20 years, David's on the run in exile. Can you imagine what he's going through? I'll tell you what he's going through. He's going through training in the hard school of Knox to be the leader God needs him to be. He's a kid. He doesn't know stuff. He's had some victories like over Goliath. He's probably cocky and arrogant. You can't lead that way. You have to be dependent on the ultimate leader if you're going to be a good and godly leader. And so God is allowing David's exile to enhance his sense of dependence on God. By the way, that's what's happening with us. In case you're wondering, oh, God, you're supposed to love me. Why am I going through this? It's not to destroy. It's to develop. Be honest. We do better in times of affliction than when things are going smoothly. When we hurt, we're more prone to run to God, seek him in his word, pray, Ask other Christians to help us. So God allows us to go through things again, not to destroy us, but to develop us, make us fit for eternity, make us more fruitful, even in this life. So David has to run away, and he escapes that night. And then verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. He's paranoid, Saul. He hates David. In order to put him to death in the morning, but... It, it says Michael, right? Her name's actually Michal. Michal. Michael's a weird name for a woman, and it's because it's not Michael. It's Michal, but we'll go for Michael because we're in Texas. So Michael, David's wife. This is interesting. Jonathan is Saul's son and David's best friend. Michael is David's wife and uh, Saul's daughter. This is Saul's daughter. So uh, she tells David... If if you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be dead. You'll be put to death. That's what she tells him. And so verse 12, Michael let David down through a window. And he went out and fled and escaped. And Michael took the household idol, your Bible, Mona, your, your Bible on this, there's a footnote, might say teraphim, teraphim. That's the household. There you go. Uh, very good. There you got a good one. Well, you paid good money to find out it's teraphim. So, so this is a weird deal. What's David and Michael doing having an idol in their house? I don't have any idea. All I can tell you is God's people do dumb stuff. That's all I can tell you. What's in your house that shouldn't be there? Don't answer. I mean, we're Christians. We're part of the covenant. You know, we're God's people. Probably got books, movies, who knows what, substances. 
beverages. Probably shouldn't be there. What are you going to do? There's no justification for it, but there it was. Anyway, she takes the household idol, not to worship it. Look what she does. She laid it on the bed, David's bed. And she put a quilt of goat's hair at its head, make it look like hair. And she covered it with clothes. She made it look like it was David in bed because he escaped, see. So she's doing this stuff. Verse 14, when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said he's sick. They want to go see David. He's oh, sorry, can't get to him. He's sick. Well, she's like, she's got royal blood, Michal. They don't want to push past her. So they go back uh, and report to Saul. You know, we went there, but your daughter said he's sick. So verse 15, then Saul sent messengers again to see David saying, bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. I don't care if he's sick. I'm going to dead him in a second. You know? I mean, this guy is really losing it, don't you think? Get David, carry him on his bed so I can kill him. So when the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this? And let my enemy go so that he has escaped. And Michael said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? So she lied, huh? She said, Dad, I had no choice. You know, David said, if I don't let him go, he's going to kill me. So now David fled and escaped. Where would you run to in a situation like this? There's a lot of places. Where would you run? I mean, would you run to the bar, liquor store? I don't know. Get some crack cocaine on the street to relieve your pain? I don't know what the deal is. Would you run to a prostitute? You deserve a little break today? I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Would you run to some fortune teller, some palm reader, some who knows what? What's up? Look what David did. It says right here, he escaped, came to Samuel. Who's Samuel? The godliest man in Israel at the time. Prophet. Retired now. He's largely retired. But he's available when a guy like David needs help. And so David runs to Samuel at Ramah. That's where Samuel retired to. And he told him all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and stayed at a place called Naot. Naot. Naot means tents. It's right close to Ramah. I can only imagine the conversations. Samuel says, David, good to see you, but why are you here? David said, oh, don't ask. He said, I know you anointed me to be king of Israel. You yourself did, and now look what's happened to me. I cannot square this with the goodness of God. Does God hate me? Does he want to kill me? What have I done? You know what David is probably doing? He's struggling with the same problem you and I have. If God is good and loving, why do we go th- loving? Why do we go through what we go through? It's a big issue, you see. And so I bet you this, there's this kind. And I wonder if Samuel, the godly man, said, "David, here's the deal. I can make an attempt and an explanation, but there really is none that will be acceptable to you. Instead, I need to just tell you two things, two questions: Isn't God sovereign?" And isn't God good? Those are the two questions. How do you answer? Isn't God in control? If so, the cruel winds of fate have not befallen you. God's in control. And is God good? If he's good, though what's happening to you may not be good, he's good and can use it for good. These are the big issues. And so I can imagine the conversation between the two of them at Ramah. And Naot... um, 
was the place we find out it, it was called the location of what's called the School of the Prophets. It was like a Bible college, you might say. I mean, Samuel is the big gun prophet. People are coming to learn from him. And so they're there at Naot. And so verse 19, it was told Saul, who told him? Who knows? Someone snitched. It was told Saul, saying, behold, David is at Naot in Ramah. So Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. What in the world? Saul sends a band to take David captive, to bring him back so as to kill him. And all of a sudden, they're kind of overcome by the Spirit of God, and they become, they start prophesying like the others. Now, don't misunderstand. When you see the word prophet or prophesying in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean what we think it does. We think it means foretelling the future. That's only a small aspect of what a prophet of old did. The word actually means proclaiming with boldness the truth of God, not necessarily revealing to people their future. So today when you watch on so-called Christian TV, all these prophets who are telling you, God has told me, you're out there, it's someone out there, slightly balding man, I see him here. You know, you know, they're going through all these gyrations. God has told me to tell you to pack up and move to Detroit, Michigan. And you think you, oh, God has spoken to me. You, you are out of your mind. That is not the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy mostly is to declare God's stated truth, not to declare to you things God hasn't revealed yet. That's not the major point of prophecy. So you have this school of prophets there. They're prophesying. They're praising God and all the rest. All of a sudden, Saul's emissaries catch this influence, and they are stopped dead in their tracks, and they join the crowd of the prophets. In other words, their murderous intentions are put on hold. They're in a trance-like state. They're stopped dead. Now, here's how Saul does. Verse 21. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. This guy doesn't get it. He sends a second group. And they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers the third time. Same thing happens to them. What looks like a blessing from God, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. I think I can demonstrate to you in just a second. It's not a blessing at all. Well, verse 22. Then he himself, Saul, went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Secu. We don't know where that is. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? Someone said, behold, they are at Naot in Ramah. He proceeded there to that place. And the Spirit of God came upon him also so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naot in Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and night. Therefore, they said, is Saul also among the prophets? What's happening here? Folks, when you see unusual spiritual manifestations that are unconventional um, that, and that don't square with Scripture, what's, where does it come from? Only three possibilities. One, demonic. Two, psychological effect. You know, you're in a church service, people are doing stuff, you join the crowd. Three, God did it. But the fact that certain unusual spiritual manifestations are produced by God's Holy Spirit doesn't mean it's meant to bless you. That's an odd thing for a guy to say, but let me tell you. These people got the Holy Spirit. They end up prophesying. But God didn't send it to bless them. God sent, sent it to paralyze them. Why? 
They were on the way to, to take captive and murder God's anointed king of Israel. God intervenes in the power of his Holy Spirit, and he gives these people essentially what they're looking for, the wrong things. So he stalls them out, and they're stopped dead. It's not from demons. It's not from psychology. It's from God himself. This explains to me a lot of stuff. And what happened? What's the manifestation for Samuel? He strips himself down and lies naked on the ground from morning to night. If you think that's meant to bless him, something is, you got a weird idea how to be blessed. By the way, when it says naked, it doesn't mean completely naked. It means he stripped off his outer royal garments, as if to say, uh, your royal position is stripped from you. There was a movement some time ago called the Holy Laughter Movement, where in groups, church, so-called church groups, people would get the Holy Spirit of God and the manifestation would be uncontrollable laughter. I mean, that would be the whole nature of this. You know, people would be just rolling in the aisles and do all kinds of stuff. There was a movement some time ago in which people would bark like dogs. I'm not making this up. It was called the Toronto Blessing. I mean, it's one thing after. I mean, it's no weirder than what Saul did over here, you know, writhing on the ground half naked. This kind of stuff. Where's that from? Could be from demons, sometimes is. Could be psychological response, sometimes is. Could even be from God. But not necessarily to bless. You know what God blesses? The right pursuits. They're pursuing the wrong thing. God simply used this to curtail their evil intentions. What's the message? Folks, in this new year, you and I got to pursue the right stuff. I'm not looking for some dramatic, theatrical, get fixed, quick, supernatural scheme, pursue Jesus. Pursue consecration. Pursue holiness. Pursue the cross. It's tough. Pursue the cross. Trust God to use even suffering and pain to develop you and I to be more like, to be more like Jesus. Do not assume every spiritual manifestation you read about or, uh, on, or see on the online or watch on TV, don't assume. Don't assume when people are slain in the spirit and go backward, don't assume it's from demons. Don't assume it's just a psychological effect. You can even assume it's from God, but don't assume it's for good. Some people simply want the experience. They don't want holiness. They do not want to deny self, take up one's cross and follow Jesus. So you have these experiences. Oh, I went to this church experience, and the guy was up there. And he, he didn't know me. He looked me right in the eye. He put his hand on. He just, you know, he, he, uh, he wrapped his coat around like this. And, boy, I just went under. I'm not in a position to say Satan did that. I could even say, yeah, God did that. Because apparently, as with Saul, he knows your heart. And all you want is some emotional experience. You don't want to go with God daily, hear his still, small voice, and grow daily, even through the hard times of life. You want some quick, dramatic emotion. And, and you say, well, now why would God give someone something like that? How is that not a blessing? Because then you'll seek more and more of those things. But you won't seek Jesus. You'll just seek more of those emotional, bizarre, crazy experiences. Now, I know what I've, I've said, like 9 million conventional, uh, controversial things today. So I end with this. If I'm wrong, tell me. That's all. If you see it differently, just tell me. And I'll, I'll do two things. I'll either say, man, I'm wrong. I apologize. I'll tell the class. Or I'll say, you're wrong. Get off my case.
So First Samuel 19 explains to me a lot of crazy stuff going on today. I don't have to say that someone's demon-possessed. I could say, yeah, you might have been affected by God. But God sometimes will give you less than his best if that's what you want. He can stop you in your tracks. He can keep your forward movement spiritually. If you don't want to seek him daily as you ought to in word and prayer and obedience and holiness, just, he can give you these experiences for crying and that's all you get. You're just, you're just you know, in a trance-like state, but you're going nowhere. You're not bearing much fruit. All you're doing is waiting for the next crazy church meeting where you can bark like a dog and laugh. How about a laughing dog? Now that... Let's pursue Jesus in 2018. Understand Jesus? Fully comprehend him? I don't think so this side of heaven. He's sovereign. He's good. What's the proof? Resurrection from death. That shows me sovereignty even over death. Shows me goodness. He didn't have to rise from death if he didn't die for you and me. That settles all issues, it seems to me. Pursue Jesus in this new year. Lord, we bow before you. We don't want to be like Saul, that's for sure. We don't want to, your second best. We would like your first best. Therefore, we'll wait on it. We won't seek quick fixes, counterfeit spirituality. We don't want to settle, and you don't want us either. Oh, God, may we be closer to you in this new year. Reflect you more. Bear more fruit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. We went over a little bit, but let me tell you, for me, it was worth it.